All right, well, so far in uh, our discussion, our study on the ministry of restoration, uh, we've discussed a number of things. We started uh, by creating a biblical standard that would justify uh, confronting someone for sin, uh, which goes like this. Uh, Failure in essential theology, as we've said, is truth concerning God, the God of the Bible. There's failure in essential doctrine, that's truth of and about the Bible, and failure in essential ethics, that is biblical morality. So failure in any of these essentials is worthy of a confrontation. And then we turn to Jesus' instruction in Matthew 18 for what we've called a protocol that would govern the way that we should confront a sinning brother or sister. It was according to Jesus in Matthew 18 that whenever we become conscious of a believer's failure in any of those three essential categories, we are obligated out of love for our fellow believer and out of obedience to Christ to confront them for their sin. And when we confront them, we are instructed to keep the matter, Jesus says, confidential. And if our brother or sister concedes with our rebuke and repents, Jesus says that we have won our brother after which we should celebrate their restoration, uh, restoring them to fellowship with Christ and then with his people. But if they do not repent, Jesus says that we must take with us one or two other witnesses to once again confront the sinning believer. If their repentance is secured, again, we've won our brother or sister and we should rejoice. If they refuse to repent, Jesus says that their sin then must be reported to the whole church. Once again, if they heed the church's call to repentance, they are to be received back into fellowship with rejoicing. But if they will not listen to the church, Jesus says, let them be to you, that is, treat them as a pagan or a tax collector, which he means excluding them from the fellowship until they do repent. So every person in the fellowship is instructed Uh, when there's no repentance, to avoid them, to not eat with them, or to have any association with them. That's the instruction Paul gave, as we saw in 1 Corinthians 5 last Sunday, which was an actual real example of confronting an unrepentant person in the church. Also in our study, we discussed what we've said is four categories of sinners, which goes like this. There's the sins of the laity, sins of the leadership, There's divisive people, which is broken up into different things, which we'll get to next Sunday. There's also heretics, which are false teachers. Now, again, the laity is a reference to those in the church that don't hold an office. That is the office of pastor or elder. Uh, The discipline applied to the laity, we've discussed in 1 Corinthians 5, and the reason that we, we break uh, all of these up into these four categories is simply because scripture does and because the protocol for dealing with each is a little different in the scriptures. Matthew 18, Jesus essentially grants the laity three strikes for unrepentance before they're excluded from the fellowship of the church. But there are less strikes, as it were, for leaders and others because of the degree of danger a person's sin might be to the majority of people. And so today, uh, we're going to move on to addressing the sins of the leadership. leadership. Now, 
there is what we, I, I would call it a sad epidemic in the church today of fallen leaders. The last 20 years really has delivered a tragic blow to the reputation of the church because of the gross sins among those who lead us. There's been a lack of accountability and oversight. Uh, and also, I think that many of these problems have occurred because there's, there's the, what we call the parachurch ministries, which I do believe provide a service to the church, but they do fall outside of God's design for the church, where there's not this strong accountability that Jesus provided within the context of the church itself. And so while I appreciate much of what the parachurch ministries do, they, they still fall outside of God's design, and they've proven to be filled with problems. So today, uh, we'll look at the instruction regarding the discipline of a leader, and then we'll look at an actual example from the scriptures. By leadership, we mean pastors and elders. Now, in this whole discussion, I realize that there uh, are some who they don't even believe that these categories exist uh, in the church, uh, but it's actually the scriptures that single them out. And the scriptures single them out in regard to gifting, to calling, to appointment, qualifications, responsibilities, as well as the unique protocol for discipling them. So Real quick, I want to go over this uh, sort of a defense for the offices. Uh, it'll be brief, and then we'll get into uh, the instruction on how to discipline leaders. So how do, we, uh, how do we define these leaders? Where do we find them in the scriptures? Uh, especially when we're speaking to people that would say that that uh, organization does not exist in the church. Well, for example... Just before Paul describes those who are gifted for leadership within the church, he says that when Christ ascended on high, he led captivity captive and he gave gifts to men, Ephesians 4, 8. And then Paul says that Christ gave or gifted some to be, verse 11, he says, he gave some to be apostles and prophets, evangelists and pastor teachers. Now, I don't have time this morning to cover with any great detail the first three this morning. I have addressed them elsewhere. So I think it will suffice to say that the first two, which is apostles and prophets as offices, were confined or limited to the first century, both ending with the death of the last apostle, who was John. Now, how do we defend that? Well, given to those two particular offices, was the divine authority to steer the entire church, that is globally, and they had the ability to perform what Paul calls the signs of an apostle, and also by the Holy Spirit, they had the ability to write Holy Scripture. Now, no one today, no one alive has those three, uh, does not have that authority or those abilities. So those two gifts were meant only to establish the church and to complete the Scriptures uh, as Paul would say in Ephesians 2.20. I think there's also evidence for that in John 14 and 16. Then there's the evangelist, which I think is a very interesting office. It may be the most rare among the, the ministry gifts today. I'll leave that for another day as well. But concerning pastors and teachers, there is a grammatical construction in the Greek that combines pastors and teachers so that they're the same office, 
but with a dual gifting. We could say that this office uh, is that of pastor-teacher. He's a teaching shepherd. So every pastor must be a teacher, otherwise he's just not a pastor. But this does not mean that every teacher is a pastor. Here's my point. Paul says that Christ gave some to be, which means that he did not give others to be. Someone is the pastor and others are not. The office is distinguished. But to be clear, the office is not an office of privilege, as some think it is. It's a privilege to be in that office, but the pastor is not to be privileged above those he serves. The pastor is an office of service. Uh, He's a servant leader, as Jesus describes in Matthew 20, verse 26, and then, of course, John 21, 15 through 17. There is also the office of elder, which is distinguished from the pastor, uh, most specifically in these, these ways. Uh, pastor is an office according to gifting and calling, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, whereas the office of elder is an office of an appointment. For example, in Acts 14, 23, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders in every city where they had planted a church. Titus was responsible for appointing elders in all of the cities on the island of Crete where uh, it seems that him and Paul had planted churches. That's Titus 1.5. So the primary role of the pastor is to teach the scriptures, but Paul says that an elder must at least be able to teach, 1 Timothy 3.2. So the primary role of the elder is to oversee the spiritual affairs of the church, as we see both in 2 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. Um, Some people would say it this way, every pastor uh, is an elder because he he also oversees the spiritual affairs of the church, but an elder is not necessarily a pastor. Like the pastor, the role of an elder is servanthood, just as Peter says in 1 Peter 5, uh, verse 1 through 4, we would emphasize again that every office of leadership within the context of the church is a position of service. Uh, This is the example that Christ gave us as the ultimate leader. He, as our Lord and King, teacher and master, did not come to be served, he said, but to serve and to give his life a ransom. So while there are distinguished offices within the church, there are no differing classes of people within the church. There's no first, second, or third-rate citizens. And those leaders who think otherwise or treat others accordingly should be removed from their office. They're disqualified for the position. So as we look at the New Testament, uh, these offices clearly exist according to God's design for the church. We should recognize them for what they are according to the scriptures, and we should hold biblical leadership accountable to the text of God's word. So the question is, how do we hold them accountable when sin is present, when they're unrepentant? How do we do that? Because sin leaders do sin, they do fail, and some fall. But how do we deal with this? So to begin with, let's, let's look at our Bibles. Uh, turn, if you would, to 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. 1 Timothy 5. 19 through 21, Paul instructs Timothy, the pastor of the church in Ephesus, this way. He says, Timothy, do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Those who are sinning 
rebuke in the presence of all, that the rest also may fear. I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. 1 Timothy 5, 19 through 21. Now there are a number of necessary observations uh, that are worth noting in this passage. First, for an elder to be convicted of an unrepentant failure in one of the three categories of those areas of theology, doctrine, and ethics, the following protocol must be followed to convict them. There must be a plurality of witnesses. That is required. The sinning elder must be rebuked. The pastor must rebuke the elder. He must be rebuked in the presence of all, that is the congregation, that all the elders would fear, and finally showing no prejudice or partiality. That is a hard set of instructions. Paul begins by saying that we must have a plurality of witnesses regarding the elder's unrepentant sin, verse 19. Without this plurality of witnesses, Paul commands Timothy not to receive the accusation. But please understand, if there is good evidence that would demonstrate an elder's guilt, that evidence will be considered as a witness. Okay? And I say unrepentant sin because in verse 20, Paul uses the present tense regarding the sin. Paul is talking about a scenario where an elder has been accused of sinning and has not stopped sinning. There is no repentance. Where a plurality of witnesses have just demonstrated that an elder is living in sin, he requires... God requires that the elder must be rebuked. But the elder is not to be rebuked by just anyone. He is to be rebuked by the pastor. Why? Let me give you some reasons. First, the elder is under the pastor's charge. The elder is an under-shepherd. He's serving at the pastor's discretion. He answers to the pastor for good and for bad. Third, all of Paul's instruction in this letter were written to Timothy, who is the pastor of the church of Ephesus. Paul was not writing to the board of elders, not to the church as a whole or to the laity in general. He was instructing Timothy on how to deal with one of his elders who were unrepentant. For example, back in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, Paul told Timothy, he said, these things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. This is a letter to a pastor regarding the responsibilities, his responsibilities in the church. One of which, as Paul is saying here, is the discipline of his elders if they are unrepentant. In verse 21, Paul gives the charge here in our text to Timothy, not to anyone else. The other elders in the church should encourage and support the pastor's responsibility to rebuke the sinning elder, but it is for the pastor to confront him. Second, it should be the pastor confronting the unrepentant elder because it honors the biblical structure of authority, the chain of command that we see all through the scriptures. Paul says that Timothy, the pastor, is the one who is to receive or to reject the accusation, and it's Timothy who is to rebuke the elder The accusation should not be shared with just anyone in the church, but to the pastor. And not just anyone in the church is responsible for rebuking 
that elder, not just anyone shoulders that burden. The pastor does. And finally, it will be the pastor who either restores or removes the elder from his position and even from the fellowship if necessary. Any other reproach, reproach, approach rather, ignores the scriptures. Now, in saying all of that, I realize that there are a number of church traditions that see this differently and they do things very differently, but it doesn't change what the scripture teaches. Okay, so here at Calvary, we do what we see in the text and that's how we'll do it here. Now, I'm sure people are wondering, what if the pastor does nothing when an elder's sin has been proven? That's a good question. If the pastor does nothing, if he ignores it, you should take it to the elders. If the elders do nothing, if they ignore it, leave the church and find a church that has good leadership. Others are wondering, what if the pastor is the one sinning? Another good question. If the pastor is sinning, go to the elders. And if the elders hide it or ignore it, you need to leave the church for a good one. Let's get back to the text. If the elder's sin is proven, he is to be rebuked by the pastor in the presence of all. That is to say, the whole congregation. Those who serve in public office for the sake of the people do not get the luxury of privacy when they are unrepentant in one of these three essential categories. When they continue in sin, they defile a sacred trust, a responsibility given to them by God for the sake of his people, to whom the elder is accountable. His sin should not be swept under the rug, but exposed to those he has charge over. Why? Well, Paul says, he says that the rest, meaning the other elders in the church, that they may fear or rather keep on fearing, as the grammar suggests. You see, an elder who does not hold his office with fear and trembling, he's a dangerous person. But when public leaders are held accountable publicly, it has a sobering effect on the other leaders, and the fear of God settles upon them, as it ought. The elder who lives in sin does not take his office seriously. He holds it flippantly. He does not fear God. He doesn't respect his office or hold the people in high esteem. He is better off elsewhere. But see, the threat of being exposed to the masses has proven to be a great deterrent to sin. But it also makes a man think twice before, see before seeking the position of an elder. Notice also in the text that leaders are not granted the, the three-strike policy, as we see in Matthew 18, where God grants that to the laity. Leadership is always held at a higher standard. Now, it's not without mercy, it's not graceless. When we look at the incident with Peter, with Jesus, Jesus gave Peter grace after he failed so miserably. But the standard is still higher for leaders. So when there are a plurality of witnesses to an elder's unrepentant sin, where he's failing in regard to one or more of these three essential areas, he's to be rebuked promptly and publicly. Mind you, if there, if there is repentance, depending on the kind and the gravity of sin, it does not necessarily mean that the elder must step down from his position. Not all sins disqualify. Peter is a perfect example of that. But unrepentance, that always disqualifies. Lastly, in verse 21, Paul forbids any prejudice or partiality shown in favor of an elder in the context of unrepentant sin. Notice again the gravity uh, in, in Paul's tone, verse 21. 
Read it again with me. He says, I charge you, that is Timothy, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels, that you observe or obey these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. Now, too often, churches have protected their leadership rather than chastising them and putting them under the discipline of the church. Instead of exposing leaders, they're often, um, those leaders are often moved on to a different church in a different city or quietly retired without any consequences. It's reprehensible. Some years ago, a priest was quietly retired and he was granted secrecy in regard to his identity and his location, even though it was well established through witnesses that he was a serial pedophile. But last year, someone discovered his identity and location and they started sending him death threats. Can't say I feel sorry for him. He should be in prison or worse and the institution that protected him should be brought down. On the other hand, a pastor friend of mine had his associate pastor come to him a number of years ago confessing that he was having a sexual relationship with one of the 14-year-old girls in his church. What did my friend do? Well, with the associate still sitting in his office, he picked up his phone, he called the police, and told them to come remove the filth from his office. That was amazing. But because he, pro- he, he acted promptly, wisely, and biblically, the Lord honored it. He preserved the church, and today they're healthier than they've ever been. But if he had not done that, I'm afraid that his church would have crumbled and they never would have, would have trusted him. So Paul's instruction here must be obeyed, he says, without prejudice and without showing partiality. So let's look at a, a real biblical example uh, of a leader being rebuked promptly and publicly, and I would say effectively. Uh, please turn to Galatians 2, 11 through 14. Galatians 2, 11 through 14. Most of you have covered much of this with me, but it's fitting for our context. This is what Paul reported. He says, now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? As I said, we've been here a few times in our study to the book of Galatians, but this is a good reminder. So the, the scenario, the context here, uh, Paul and Barnabas uh, had helped plant, uh, or not plant, but establish the church in Antioch. And since then, they had launched from Antioch to do mission work. And while they were there, before launching out again, the apostle Peter, the chief apostle, had come to Antioch for a visit. And during the first part of his visit, He would eat with the Gentiles, that is the non-Jewish Christians, and he was eating their food, which is forbidden in the law of Moses. But why wouldn't he? He had had his dream at Simon the Tanner's house regarding unclean foods, where Jesus commanded Peter to eat them, Acts 10. And even more recently, following his vision in Jerusalem at the first council, the Holy Spirit cleared things up 
regarding the law of Moses since the establishment of the new covenant. So there Peter was. He was enjoying the fellowship and the food of the Gentiles. But later on, during his visit, Jews from Jerusalem, the Jerusalem church, which James pastored, they had come to Antioch. And as soon as Peter became aware of their presence in the city, he stopped eating with the Gentiles. Why would he do that? Well, verse 12 says that Peter was motivated by fear. Fear of what? He was afraid of what the Jews might say or what the Jews might think of him. Who knows? Maybe he was afraid of who they might tell. But Peter buckled to fear instead of defending the Holy Spirit's conclusion at the Jerusalem Council and instead of upholding Jesus' command at Simon's house. And because he failed to stand for the truth as the chief apostle, he infected others with hypocrisy and he brought confusion to the church at Antioch. Earlier in his stay there, he communicated by his actions that it was okay for Jewish believers to eat Gentile food, which it is. But after the Jews came to Antioch, he stopped eating Gentile food and only ate kosher food, we might say, which then communicated to the Gentiles, the Gentile believers, that they needed to live like the Jews eating their diet. And because he is the apostle Peter, Barnabas and others were sucked into his hypocrisy. Peter was failing in an essential area of doctrine, but not just any doctrine. It was new covenant doctrine for the sake of food. He was forsaking the truth about the gospel, which we see in the text earned him a public rebuke from Paul. Notice, Peter did not get three strikes. As soon as Paul caught on to his shenanigans, he took action. As a leader, Peter was accountable to everyone for his actions, not just to the church in Antioch, but to the church universal. And perhaps that's why we see the story here in our text. It's for us. And as a leader in Antioch and as an apostle, Paul was responsible for the defense and the preservation of the truth, as well as the recovery of his brother and fellow apostle. Paul did exactly as he instructed Timothy. He did exactly as the Holy Spirit instructed him. He rebuked Peter publicly, clearly stating Peter's sin of not accurately representing the truth of the gospel and how he caused others to stumble in hypocrisy and how he sowed confusion to the church. Now, when you consider all of this in the whole context, you know that this must have been difficult for everyone in the room. I mean, just imagine how tense the room must have been. Eyes would have been wide open and jaws on the floor. I'm sure that there was a long, awkward silence before people started to look around and wonder what in the world would happen next. You know, would there be an apostolic throwdown? You know, the chief apostle was just called out publicly. So what would it mean for the church? Not just in Antioch, but globally. These were the guys that were steering the whole church at that time. Now, we don't know what happened immediately after this, but we know a few things that followed. First, because the gospel was defended, it was preserved as we have it today. Because of Paul's faithfulness, an example and a standard for leadership was, was established. Fear settled into the heart of every leader in that church, I guarantee it. Also, for his grave hypocrisy, Peter did not have to step down from his apostleship, but apparently he repented and was restored. 
Also, there was no division in the church. There was no church split there. And there was no division between Peter and Paul. In fact, later on, when Peter was writing his second epistle, he addressed Paul as our beloved brother. Apparently, the wounds of a friend are faithful. Proverbs 26, 6. So accountability among the leadership is essential to the health of the church. And good accountability begins by following the instructions provided in the scriptures. If we fail to do that, we refuse to grant lordship to Christ over his church. We must follow the scriptures. We must do it promptly. We must do it wisely. Okay, so far we've, we've looked at addressing the sins of the laity. We've addressed the sins of the leadership. And in both cases, uh, the sinners were restored through repentance. Now that is not always the case, sadly, but it is most often the case. Now next week, uh, we'll look at confronting divisive people and heretics, or what we call false teachers. And what we'll do is, in, in, the, in the midst of divisive people, we'll throw gossips and busybodies in there. And, uh, and then we'll wrap this whole study up, and we'll get back to the book of Galatians. So look forward to seeing all of you next week here in the building uh, so that we can fellowship together and worship. So let's pray, and uh, I'll let you get on with your families. Father, we thank you for your word. Um, I have to confess that there are things in your word that are difficult. Um, they're hard to follow. But Lord, I also believe that there are things that we can do as a fellowship, things that we can do uh, within the leadership of the church uh, to prevent uh, things from coming to such a, a drastic thing. And Lord, that really is us keeping an eye on one another, us loving our brothers and sisters, us being accountable to one another, um, us taking precautions and making no provision for the flesh. There's so many things that we could do so that it doesn't come to a situation where people have to be rebuked and ultimately excluded through unrepentance. So Lord, I pray for Calvary Chapel that the leadership, the laity, Lord, that you would keep us humble, that you'd keep us close to you and to one another so that we would sharpen one another. We would encourage each other. Help us, Lord, to make wise decisions in our personal life so that we're not confronted publicly, so that we're not shamed, Lord, for our sin. Lord, watch after us, I pray. And Lord, also, as the world continues to press in upon us, as our culture is strongly making demands upon us in our individual lives, business, family, Lord, and church. Help us, Lord, to stand on your scriptures and to be firm, Lord, in our convictions. And Lord, we do pray, Lord, for Frank and Juan. Lord, just be with them and help them to recover quickly. Minister to them in their pain. I thank you, Lord, that family can uh, spend uh, a number of hours with them throughout the day. I pray that that would encourage um, them and their families. But Lord, we just pray that you'd heal them quickly and bring them back to us. And Lord, we thank you that the church is recovering so quickly from COVID. And Lord, those that have, have the drawn out symptoms, Lord, we pray that you just minister to them and that you bring them back to us safely as well. So Lord, we thank you. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.